A church is a group of Christians who assemble as an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news and commands of Christ the King, to affirm one another as his citizens through the ordinances, and to display God's own holiness and love through a unified and diverse people in all the world following the teaching and example of elders. Good morning. October 1st. Uh, question, where did September go? Wow. Love seeing the... Uh, I love living where, here, like where we live in the north-ish, north-ish, um, because there's a distinct change of seasons. And I think each of the seasons has their own beauty, has their own has their own glory and fall is certainly um people ask me what is what is your favorite season of the year like the one i'm in right so right now fall is my favorite ask me in three months it'll be winter ask me in six months it'll be spring ask me in nine months it'll be summer just love 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 the change of season so we're in the midst of a sermon series rediscovering church and today, I've been tasked with, or at least the lineup is, why are preaching and teaching central? Why are preaching and teaching central? So that assumes some things, doesn't it? It assumes that there is, at the risk of stating the obvious, that there is something to preach and something to teach, right? And for us here at, at Village, it's this. It's this book uh, that we affectionately call the Word of God, right? My question is, and I'm not going to, I just want to throw this out. It also implies that this, this book is worth teaching and is worth preaching. It also suggests that this book is somehow, some way significant, special, above others. So I want I to take us on a little, a, a ever so brief history lesson, okay? So I'm going to move some things around up here, so hang with me. Oh gosh, this is heavy. Put that right there. Bring this over here. And if it wasn't so stinking heavy, I would bring that, that table, and I would put it right here. There are, broadly speaking, three branches, broadly speaking, three branches of Christendom. There's the Orthodox branch, the Roman Catholic branch, and the Protestant branch. About 1054, the Eastern and the Western Church split, divided. The Eastern Church became what we know today as the Orthodox. Think Russian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox. So that's the Eastern branch of the Church. The Western Church remained, if I could put it this way, intact for about roughly another 500 years 
until about 1517. 1517, October 31st, uh, Martin Luther's famous uh, tact the uh, the 95 Theses up on the d uh, church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And in hindsight, that ignited what is known today as the Protestant Reformation. So for about 500 years, there's been this, this um, division split in the Western Church. So broadly speaking, three branches of Christendom, Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestant. I want to speak to the, to the, the Western church and, and that 1517 thing and what became known as the Protestant Reformation. And it all has to do with what the sermon is today and what it's about, the centrality of this. So prior to the Protestant Reformation, when the church gathered corporately, the focus, the primary focus, although it was a focus, it wasn't the primary focus, wasn't the Word of God. I'm not, I'm not saying it wasn't a focus, but the main focus was, if I, had this, if I had this table up here, the main focus on in the altar area was that table. Now, we call it the Lord's Supper table, communion table, um, in, in Roman Catholic tradition or prior to the Protestant Reformation, that's where the, the transformation would happen with the bread and the wine. Transubstantiation, literally changing form, right? And that was the focal point. So you had the Word of God off, to, what we would call the Word of God off to the side, and typically, you also have another lectern or a place to speak from or read from. And typically, what would be read from here were other parts of the Bible, gospel over here, and other parts of the Bible, and even books from the Apocrypha over here, okay? So there's, there's incredible symbolism happening. So you have the gospels over here, you have other parts of the Bible and the Apocrypha read over here. But back here, you had the focal point of the gathering, which was the Blessed Sacrament, still today referred to as the Blessed Sacrament. Here's what began slowly to happen symbolically post-Protestant Reformation. This disappeared that which was up here came down here or off to the side still important but not all important and this took center stage this being <clears throat> the entire word of God The question, I think, is, are, are, like, are we justified in making the Word of God, preaching and teaching, right, central? I think that's the question. I'm of, I'm of the opinion, yes. And I want to I walk through that. I want you to remember this illustration because I'm going to come back to it 
at the end uh, of the service. And I want to I wanna nuance it a bit. Don't accuse me of heresy. I want to nuance it just a bit. One of the things that, that came out of the Protestant Reformation were called the five solas. Anybody familiar with the, have you ever heard that term before, the five solas, okay? So um, what we're going to talk about today is one of the solas. Let me, just, let me just share with you what the five solas are. Sola means uh, Latin for alone or only. So sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. Now be careful with this. The belief that because Scripture is God's inspired word, it is the only inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for the church. I'm going to come back to that at the end of the message. Hear those words again. It is the only inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for the church. Second, solus Christus, or Christ alone. So we have uh, the Bible alone, and then we have Christ alone. The assertion that Christ alone is the basis on which the ungodly are justified or, or made righteous or right, put in right standing in God's sight. Third, sola fide, faith alone maintains that uh, the believer receives redemption through, through what Christ accomplished on behalf of the believer through faith alone. So La Gratia proclaims that, that salvation from beginning to end is an act of God's grace. And finally, with all of these things in mind, the Reformers held fast to the phrase, Sola Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. So those are the five solas that, that became uh, pillars of the Reformation. And I just want to focus on the first one today, right? Sola Scriptura. So uh, I want you to turn to or head to, somehow get there, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Eventually I'm going to get there. But I want to put some more context in place. The Old Testament is filled with the concept of a covenantal relationship between God and his people. Think the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, Noah, and the Davidic covenant. So this idea of covenant is not a new thing. It's a relationship expressly documented, and this is important especially for, for us as, as, as Christians. This covenantal relationship per God himself was to be written down, was to be uh, declared, validated, proclaimed in written form per God's instructions. So it's not like man uh, just kind of dreamt this up one day. There's a, there's a divine concursus. There's, there's God, the ultimate author, and then there are human authors under the inspiration of God, and we'll get to that in a little bit. With that in mind, as a result, first century Jews were waiting for God to finish the story, so to speak. Because the story was, un 
It wasn't done. Think just Old Testament. Don't think New Testament. Think Old Testament. It was, uh, it was as N.T. Wright puts it, a story in search of an ending. So the earliest Christians, who were overwhelmingly Jewish, believed Jesus the Messiah was actually finishing the story, right? There would have been a natural anticipation by the Jews for another written covenant, a finishing of the story. Second, the earliest Christians understood covenants in the ancient world as written documents and believed Jesus the Messiah had inaugurated a new covenant. Not that the old is unimportant. Uh, it's been said by Augustine that the New Testament is in the old concealed and the Old Testament is in the new revealed. So there's a connection here. Uh, I'm just of the opinion, and no charge for this, this came with your admission fee. I'm of the uh, opinion, yes, we say the Old Testament, which is 75% of the pages in your Bible. We say the Old Testament is Scripture, but functionally, do we believe it? In other words, where do we spend most of our time when we open this book? Old Testament, New Testament, a healthy mix? It should be a healthy mix because this entire thing is the very Word of God. I'm just of the opinion, and it hurts my heart, that the typical Christian is functionally illiterate when it comes to 75% of the Bible, or the first 75%. Dear Saint, that ought not be. That ought not be. The earliest Christians, three, the earliest Christians believed the apostles were uniquely authorized by Jesus the Messiah himself to communicate the message of the new covenant. And finally, the study of the scriptures had, has, is, always a personal and communal venture. I am personally responsible for studying this book, but I am also responsible for engaging in the study of this book in a community of believers, in a communal atmosphere. It's been like that from day one. It was, it was like that pre-Christian for the Jew, and it's been like that from day one for the Christian. All right, 2 Timothy 3. I'm going to walk through verses 1 through 17, but it's 16 and 17 where I'm going to spend the most time, and that's what most Christians are familiar with, but we need some setting, right? We need some context. So 2 Timothy is what's known as a pastoral epistle or a pastoral letter. It's one of three. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, written to a church leader or church leaders, broadly speaking, those who pastor a local church. So uh, uh, 2 Timothy is written from Paul to his mentee, if we want to put it that way. Paul is a mentor, uh, uh, Timothy a mentee, and Timothy is pastoring, or at least one of the key leaders in the church at Ephesus. Think the book of Ephesians. 
So, so Paul is trying to equip, trying to encourage Timothy to shepherd the flock at Ephesus well, the flock entrusted to his care. Shepherding includes the preaching, the teaching of this book. The, that's not all shepherding entails, but it, is certain, it certainly entails what's happening right now, the preaching, the teaching of the Word of God. So, 2 Timothy, chapter 3, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read through verses 1 through 9, probably provide a little commentary as we go. Uh, again, I want to get to verses 16 and 17, but I think, I think what comes before it is important. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people. Now, Paul goes on this litany of, here's what the difficulty looks like. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And then Paul says this to Timothy, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of, and here it is, the truth. It's going to be an important concept as we walk through this sermon. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose, second time, the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Quick note on Jannes and Jambres. Uh, it seems like they were part of this... Uh, uh, magician-sorcerer mentality, magician-sorcerer cult that existed back in the time of Egypt and the, the uh, ensuing lands that, that um, uh, Moses and the people of God were supposed to go in the promised land. So it's this, this, this uh, really strange, weird gumbo. Remember, Moses, among other things, was who? He was a proclaimer of what? The Word of God, right? Now, had it been written down yet? Not yet, but it was about to. The first five books of the Bible, the Torah, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now we see what the first century early Christians, almost totally Jewish, were anticipating. This started out, we started out as a people with a book. The story's not done. There should be more to the book. So they were right in their anticipation. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy, hear these words. 
Paul wants to come to the church at Ephesus, wants to come to Timothy, see them face to face. He says this in 1 Timothy 3.15, But if I should be delayed, I have written, so that you will know how people ought, ought, a moral imperative, how people ought to conduct themselves, where, Paul, where? In God's household. Which is what, Paul? The church of the living God. What else is it, Paul? The pillar and foundation of the truth. This word truth is super important regarding this word. Um, I'm going to, as I, as I walk through this passage, I'm just going to present to you four observations regarding our topic here's observation number one preaching and teaching are central to the church because they reveal the presence of truth i don't know if i don't know if you realize this or not but we live in a post-truth culture is it anybody tracking with that what does that mean though post-truth it's not that people don't believe in truth, air quotes. People do believe in truth. But truth is no longer out there. The locus of truth is in here. So truth is no longer objective. And by objective truth, here's what I mean. Truth that is relevant for all people at all times in all places. Objective truth, the locus of truth or the location of truth is not within an individual primarily. It's not within a culture primarily. As Christians, we believe the locus or the location of truth ultimately is God himself. And we believe that God has revealed. If this book is anything, it is a revelation of God, who He is, what He's about. Last I checked, this was His story, yes? Now, has He written us into the story? Yeah. He also wrote Himself into the story. If this God, Yahweh, if He is truth then it makes sense that this book is also truth. Don't have time to get into all the apologetics. Why can we trust it? Should we trust it? All that kind of stuff. But this idea of truth should matter to us, especially in a post-truth culture. Truth today now resides within the individual. I tell my students, and they know how to finish it now. Um, I, be, I feel... Therefore, it must be real. That's a subjective understanding of reality. I am now the locus or the location of truth. Truth resides in me. But you also have your truth. Go for it. Be happy. Be well. But isn't there a, an inherent problem with that? What happens if Julie's subjective truth clashes with Bill's subjective truth? 
How do we resolve that? Big word, how do we adjudicate that? Says who? You have to hear this, friends. You have to hear this because this is where we're at. You know who adjudicates that? You know who resolves that? The biggest, baddest, the best. The one in power. It always comes down to that. If there is no overarching objective reality or objective truth, we are left, truth, capital T. We are left with our truths, small t, plural. And when those truths come into conflict, whoever is the biggest, baddest, best will prevail. That's a problem. Um, teaching my students, you only get universal... Human rights, is that a, like, like, that's a big term, right? You only get universal human rights, you only get a legit foundation for that from the Imago Dei, from the image of God. Every single person bears the image of God. That's our only universal foundation for human rights, for me treating you as you, ought to be, as you ought to be treated and you reciprocating. The only foundation for that is actually found in this book, first couple chapters of Genesis, the image of God, the Imago Dei. If you remove the Imago Dei, you can still have human rights. But there, there's no foundational element to it. And it always comes back to power. Now you have subjective human rights. In the, let me give you an example. In the area of abortion, um, those on the pro-choice, pro-abortion side now essentially see, now essentially agree that the fetus is actually a human being. But it doesn't deserve rights because it's not a person. That's called personhood theory. The fetus cannot think for itself, cannot take care of itself, and the list goes on and on. It, it actually depends on who you talk to. Do you see a problem with that? Because fundamentally... The 10-second baby outside of the womb can't do any of that either. So fundamentally, the only difference between the human being in the womb and the human being non-person outside of the womb is what? Location. That's the only fundamental difference. Really? That's, that's just one cultural example of when we abandon objective truth, objective morality, we end up with those kinds of, of, of absurdities. Like no one, I don't think, in their right mind would say the human being in the womb and 10 seconds later the human being out of the womb are fundamentally different. Except neither one has been ascribed personhood. What? Does truth matter? It matters to Christ. I maintain that Jesus was the most 
inclusive, exclusivist who ever walked the planet. I shared this before. John 3, 16, for God so loved the... Yeah. Same gospel, a little bit later, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, the life. Nobody but nobody but nobody comes to the Father. Does truth matter to God? If truth matters to God, it should matter to you. Okay? One of the reasons that this the preaching and teaching of this book are central is because truth should matter. All right, verse 10. 10 through 15. So Paul continues, speaking to Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to... Question for you. Is there wisdom in, in looking up to a seasoned saint? Is there wisdom in looking at the life who's a little, uh, of someone, of a Christian who's a little farther down the road, who's a little wiser, who has learned some things, who has life experiences? Is there wisdom in that? Yes, right? Is it, like, is discipleship biblical? Now, I get it. The ultimate discipler is Jesus, and we're pointing people to Jesus. But I'm pointing this out because I'm going to come back to this at the end of the message. Paul had no problem telling Timothy, you followed my teaching, my life, my sufferings, my persecutions. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I think, no, I know, that the North American church doesn't understand this. Not to its fullest. Because if we're honest with ourselves, I think, I think, I'm including myself in this, I think we're more about comfort than holiness. I think. Could be wrong, but I think. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to, to, to worse, watch this. Deceiving and being deceived. Is, is deception a matter of truth? Yeah. Okay. Thought experiment. I want you in the quietness of your heart. I want you to think of a time when you were deceived. Obviously, you were deceived, so you didn't know you were being deceived. And then later, you found out that you had been deceived. So I want you to think of a time when you had been deceived and you later found out that you had been deceived. What one word emotional reaction would you attach to the moment you found out that you had been deceived? Anger? Disappointment? Rage? Bitterness? My point is, it is no fun being deceived. 
But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Here's Paul again pointing to other sources of wisdom and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the, with the what? With the scriptures or with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> if, if one of the reasons that this the preaching and teaching of this book is central to the church, is central to the life of the church, is a matter of truth. A second way is because preaching and teaching reveal the pathway to salvation. Theologians tell us that there are two ways, basically speaking, that God has revealed Himself to us. Now, I want you to think about that. <coughs> How would you reveal yourself to an ant? Like, what would that look like? How low would you go, right? How far would you have to condescend to speak ant speak? That's a poor example, but you get the picture. How far did God have to condescend to reveal himself to us? Because he is infinitely beyond us. So theologians tell us there are two, two ways that God has actually revealed who He is. The first is called general revelation, uh, and the second is called special revelation. General revelation is we can learn some things about God. We can actually come to know some things about God via His creation. Um, it's not like... It's not that God is like fire. No, fire is like God. How does fire inform us about God? How does that field of corn inform us about God? How do fellow image bearers inform us about God? What, do, what, what does the uniqueness of every image bearer reveal to us about who God is, what He's like, what His nature is? That's general revelation. We can, as an artist to their artwork, we can learn some things about the artist through their artwork. Same thing with creation. We can learn some things about who God is via His creation. But we need special revelation, the life of Jesus Christ and Scripture primarily, to reveal to us more intimately who God is. So this book reveals to us much more intimately than creation could. What's the story, Lord? Who are you really? Now, can a book... <coughs> exhaust an infinite God can a book give us all the information that there is to know about an no of course not but be careful simply because we cannot know God exhaustively it doesn't mean we cannot know him truly I don't know my wife exhaustively I am still plumbing the depths of her nature. But simply because I don't know her exhaustively, it doesn't mean I can't know her truly. 
I think I know you truly, but I don't know all the... You get the picture, right? So preaching and teaching are central because they reveal the pathway to salvation. What's the pathway to salvation? <coughs> Through Jesus Christ. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. All right, verses 16 and 17. Kind of where I wanted to get. These are probably familiar passages of Scripture to several of you. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All right, we're just going to do a hardcore word study here. Breathed out by God. The uh, interesting Greek word is theopneustos, literally breathed out by God. That expresses so important the divine nature and origin of the scriptures the divine nature and origin of the scriptures all scripture is is of divine origin and nature profitable simply means useful now there's a sense, uh, and I, I think a very biblical sense, this is a very, use, this is a very pragmatic book. <coughs> this is a very useful book. It's so much more than that, but it is a very useful book. And Paul continues on. Paul, how is it useful? He says it's profitable for teaching. The function of the information contained in this book is to teach us about primarily about God himself who he is who we are in, 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 who li in light of who he is and then what are his expectations of us I'm of the opinion that God is not in the business of talking to us just to hear himself talk check it out Genesis through Revelation when God spoke to people it always required some kind of a response Always, always, always. The word translated teaching here, wisdom, truth, knowledge, is of, of the 21 times it appears in the New Testament, 12 times it's translated doctrine. When I even, when I even think of that word doctrine, I think I, I start to salivate. I start to, like the, the theology class coming up, systematic theology it's like magic not magic magic but you know what I'm saying doctrine doctrine matters this is more than doctrine but doctrine is not unimportant I tell my students you may not realize this or not but you have a worldview, and that worldview is based on doctrine it may not be what you think it is your presuppositions but it's built on something Remember the uh, little exercise about being deceived? Nobody likes to be deceived. Truth matters. Reproof. It's the inner persuasion or conviction. Have you ever, have you ever like been minding your own business? Just having a nice little warm devotional thought? Open pages before you. Good cup of coffee right here. And Bam! Like, out of nowhere, God says, that's you. Or, that's for you. Or, Bill, are you listening? 
Is that, that that's what reproof is. It's that inner conviction brought forth by the Holy Spirit of God through the Word of God <coughs> that says, Bill, dude, something needs to change here. Now, is, is that an act of love on God's part? Those of you who are parents, do you ever reprove your children? <laughs> yes. Yes, why? Because we're killjoys? No. Because we are forming character. And so is your Heavenly Father. Your Heavenly Father's good and great goal for your life is that you would increasingly look, act, taste, smell like Jesus. That's it. You want to know? That includes persecutions. That includes discipline. includes the whole nine yards. But it's born out of love from the Father to you. Correction. <clears throat> a restoration to proper original condition. Setting straight, straight, making right again. Alice just had, had surgery recently on her, on her knee and get, get that dude right and straight and she's going through physical therapy and all that kind of good stuff. And we've been there, right? We get the physical side of this. There's also a spiritual side to this. That God's loving corre uh, correction through the preaching, teaching of his word we're, we're out of joint. And we need to be set straight. Another gracious, loving act of our Heavenly Father. Training, the training and education. This word right here literally means the training and education of, of children with what? With the goal of full maturity in view, right? I just spent uh, uh, the last couple of nights with my nephew. Uh, by law, he's under 18, and my, my brother and his wife went out of town for a wedding, and uh, the, other, the other accommodations fell through, so I, I was with Josh for Friday and Saturday night. Josh is 17 years old, and I told him uh, this morning when I was getting ready to leave, actually last night when I was going to bed, I said, Josh, I'm pretty proud of the young man that you are becoming. Aren't we all becoming I hope so aren't we all becoming more and more like Jesus question can you do that effectively in isolation I don't see how that's why this community piece is so important training how in righteousness this is actually a judicial term it means that upon examination, the verdict is in, and you have been approved. Training in righteousness. In this context, obviously, it's the approval of God. Third observation, preaching and teaching are central to the church because they reveal practices for right living. Be careful there, though. Um, you don't, like, work your way into God's good favor. No, the practices are because or a result of we are favored by God. I don't, you can't, can't do anything to get God to love you, but we can do things because God loves us. Verse 17, that the man, woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, complete, ready, fitted. In my BC days, I, uh, 
went backpacking up in the Colorado Rockies. I needed to be equipped. I needed to be complete. I needed to be ready. So I went out and bought me a backpack. Do I still have that? I still have that. Yeah, that was like 1980. Holy cow, like 43 years old. And bought all the necessary rations, all the necessary tools. Why? Because I wanted to live. I wanted to survive, you know, backpacking in the Colorado Rockies. This book, all scripture breathed out by God, can make you ready, can make you fit, can equip you for every single good work that God, last I checked, this is God's ballgame, yes? And if I understand scripture, here's what God does. Um, Long before we got here, God was on the move. God was on mission. Long after we leave this place, God will still be on mission. It's his mission. It's his ballgame. But watch what he does. He invites us in to what he is doing. Devana, I am doing this good work right now in your presence, and I want you to join me. And he'll do that to you, and you, and you, and you. And what a privilege to be able to have been equipped by the preaching and teaching central, centrality of the word, right? And to join God in this mission that has eternal ramifications. Like if we get that, you'll never lack for job security. I'm not talking about job job. I'm talking about meaning and purpose in life. The infinite God desires to partner with you to bring about his righteous kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. I don't, like, where's there a better deal than that? Preaching and teaching are central to the church because they reveal the equipping necessary for partnering with God in his good works. Let me wrap it up. In the context of the question, why are preaching and teaching central? I want to tie in the opening illustration with two important terms that I hope gives us a broader understanding of wisdom, knowledge, and truth. The terms involve roles that various pieces of authority play in our lives or should play in our lives and specifically in the life of the church. The two terms are magisterial authority and ministerial authority. Magisterial authority and ministerial authority. The magisterial authority in the church is this book, is scripture, is the Bible. It has the ultimate and final say. A recognition of Scripture's preeminent place and the authority in the church. Like, it's it. There's nothing above it. Be careful with that. Um, Be careful that... Be careful that you don't worship the Word of God rather than the God of the Word. Okay, this is, this is pointing us to someone. And that someone needs to be worshipped. 
That's magisterial authority. At the same time, and here's my caution to all of us, we should be careful to not throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater. I think we would also be wise to give credence to the ministerial role of things like church theologians, church creeds, church councils. Um, I have a newsflash for us Protestants. Like the church didn't begin in 1517. It didn't. It began when Jesus said, I'll build my church. It began technically, I think, at Pentecost. So be careful, Protestants, <clears throat> that, you <don't clears throat> that you don't worship your denomination. It's like way off base. Church history goes well beyond 1517. It seems to me <clears throat> that in evangelical Protestant circles, generally speaking, we give little notice to the great creeds, the great councils, or sit at the feet of the great church fathers. We all too often seem to go no further back than Luther or Calvin. I think that's a mistake, and I think it smacks of generational elitism, or as C.S. Lewis was fond of saying, chronological snobbery. Yes, this is it. This is ultimate. But it doesn't mean, like general revelation, God hasn't given us other sources of wisdom and other sources of knowledge, including people. Right? Isn't that what Paul said? You've learned from me, Timothy. Right? As long as Paul is in line with this, he could say, mimic me as I mimic Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Dear saint, as disciple makers, we ought to be able to say that. I get it imperfectly, but follow me as I am following Jesus. So preaching and teaching are central to the mission of the church because we have something to teach. We have something to preach. The very word of God backed by the very God of the word. There are also other sources of wisdom, and as long as they submit to the authority of this, then drink it in, take it in. I read this book. I also read a lot of other books. There's much wisdom in other people and other views. 